Hello and welcome to The Vinyl Approach, episode 19. My name is Tom Wilmeth. In the most recent episode of this podcast, I brought up a couple of topics that I thought needed a little more discussion. I talked about how Metallica fought the music platforms. Metallica wanted to have their music sold and heard only as full albums. They did not want to allow individual tracks to be sold, and they wanted their albums played using the song order the band had selected. Metallica lost that battle, but their idea was a good one, I think, for the listener to experience an album in the way that the artist created it. Then, no sooner than that podcast was posted, I learned how Adele has insisted that her new album be given treatment similar to what Metallica had wanted, but was refused. Metallica sells a lot of records, but Adele sells a lot of records. With sales comes money, from money comes power, and powerful people's opinions get heard. In November 2021, Adele tweeted about the subject. She said, We don't create albums with so much care and thought put into our track listing for no reason. Our art tells a story, and our stories should be listened to as we intended. For Adele, that included the order of the songs on the album. Essentially, Adele wanted to eliminate Spotify's shuffle button so listeners could only hear her album's songs in the order she had chosen, just like Metallica. Spotify fell over themselves telling Adele how right she was, and now subscribers to Spotify must listen to her songs, at least on the new album, in the order she intended. Spotify says it is considering eliminating their shuffle option in other situations. Are they, or is this just a stall tactic? We'll see. There's a lot more to the Adele and the Metallica stories, and the struggle for musicians to control how their art is portrayed to an audience will undoubtedly continue. My point of artistic control was part of the comments I made on the altered song order necessitated by the limitations of the eight-track tape format. I find it interesting that this complaint about reordering an album's songs is still a hot topic today with the computer music platforms. Last time, I also talked a bit about monaural, or mono sound. Once stereo albums started to sell in greater numbers, mono was seen as passé and was replaced by stereo as quickly as possible, especially in the American market. In fact, during the 1970s and even before, monaural sound was viewed as outdated and unappealing, so much so that many mono recordings were reissued by their record companies in what was called reprocessed stereo. This was a bad idea. The creation of this reprocessed, or fake, stereo to enhance mono recordings was a market-driven decision. Record companies wanted their product to be timely, even the older releases. So what if Elvis had recorded in mono at the start of his career? We can alter the sound to make it appear like stereo, or so said RCA. It didn't turn the records into anything like true stereo, though. It just muddled the audio. Fake stereo was created by making the audio coming from a home stereo system's two speakers sound a bit different from one another. One track would have a lot of the high-end treble eliminated, or rolled off of its sound spectrum, and the bass frequencies in that speaker would be accentuated. The other track would have its low end rolled off with the treble spectrum emphasized. Even though the two speakers now carried a somewhat different sound, this did not make for a true stereo listening experience. The industry used other tricks in their failed attempts to coax stereo sound from mono recordings. Capitol Records called their system duophonic and proudly labeled their fake stereo releases with that term. These albums would have the altered frequency spectrums I just discussed, but sometimes Capitol would also place a millisecond audio delay between the sound from each speaker. Other times, echo would be added. 
but no matter how a mono recording was altered, it did not produce true stereo sound. We hated it. For decades, the records of Elvis Presley, Hank Williams, and many others were available only in reprocessed stereo. Mono records were no longer being pressed. Finding a copy of an early Elvis album that was not a fake stereo one was difficult, and this was long before the audiophile mono craze of the past decade. We searched for these original albums by Elvis and Hank Williams because the reprocessed stereo altered the audio. We wanted to hear the sound of the original recording. Even pushing the mono button on a home amplifier did not solve the problem. As I say, the sound spectrum of the two altered tracks had each been changed in a different way. Combining them was not a solution since it did not bring back the recording's true mono audio. Some artists re-recorded their early material in true stereo. Duke Ellington and Bill Monroe re-recorded many of their biggest hits, as did others. This usually worked out well for both the artist and the record label, but often caused confusion for even the fan who was paying attention. More on that another day. Some music defied stereo remakes. The original Elvis recordings were too well known to attempt re-recording them, and Hank Williams was dead. Fortunately, the process of creating fake stereo from mono was largely abandoned by the 1970s. Record labels began to release their older mono catalog without shame, thereby ending an unpleasant era in the history of records. The film industry went through and still goes through a parallel situation. They unnecessarily alter their art by colorizing older movies. Director Ron Howard recently committed this sin in his Eight Days a Week documentary on the Beatles. Some of the concert material he uses was filmed in high-resolution color, and it looks great. Other performances were shot in black and white, but Howard chooses to colorize them. Why? Did he think his audience would reject watching black and white footage of the Beatles? Eight Days a Week is very good, although there are a couple of problems with it. Let's talk for a moment longer about the Beatles. The earliest Beatles sessions were meant to be issued only in mono. Producer George Martin recorded the group onto two tracks. One was for vocals, and the other was for the group's instruments. Martin planned to mix the two tracks together for mono release. George Martin recorded the music onto two tracks so that he would have better control over the recording process. By placing instruments and vocals onto different tracks, Martin could ensure a balanced volume level on the final mono release. With the vocals of the Beatles on one track, Martin could make them as prominent as he wanted in the final mono mix. He had not recorded the vocals and instruments on different tracks for a stereo release. George Martin would later stress, I certainly didn't intend for people to hear them separate. Stereo was not in the game plan. And yet, because stereo was the rage in audio when Capitol Records issued Meet the Beatles in America in early 1964, they issued the album in both mono and stereo versions. For the stereo record, the original two tracks were kept separate, or unmixed, with vocals coming from one speaker and the instruments from the other. Very distinct separation. This was real stereo, not the simulated fake stereo discussed earlier, but to repeat, George Martin had not recorded the Beatles' music to be issued in this form with such harsh stereo separation between the vocals and the instruments. He was unhappy about it. That's too bad, but I and millions of other Americans loved this mix although we were not thinking in terms of audio mix at the time. We were just interested in hearing the Beatles. Later, we came to appreciate the stark track separation because it allowed for a closer inspection of what the instruments were playing, and from the other speaker, how the harmonies were being formed. Beatles scholar Mark Lewison agrees that the stereo record is great for hearing what the group is doing, but says the mono release has the best sound. 
God bless the mono mixes as George Martin originally envisioned them, but I still love my Capitol Records stereo mixes of the early Beatles hits, and so do you. I talked a bit ago about a home amplifier's mono button. Just as this function can't be used to return fake stereo into its original mono form, the amplifier's mono function is also unable to provide a real mono mix from a true stereo record. This combination of the right and left speaker information is called folding because the amplifier simply combines or folds the two stereo tracks into a single audio channel. This is why George Martin's mono mix of Meet the Beatles sounds different than just folding the stereo tracks together on your home amplifier. It's mono, yes, but there is still a specific mono mix involved if the session were recorded with various tracks, as was Meet the Beatles. If a session is recorded with one microphone, though, or even several microphones leading onto a single tape track, no subsequent remixing is possible. One sidebar about these records, in college, some of us would order import Beatle albums from Europe. A hard day's night comes to mind. We would listen to this UK pressing and become vexed about why the sound was different. The specific takes of each song were the same as found on the American releases, we were sure of that, but the sound wasn't the same. We sat in our dimly lit apartments and pondered these American and European Beatle records. At first, we attributed the audio difference to a superior British pressing, but that wasn't it. We later learned that Capitol had added a small amount of reverb to the master tapes of Beatle recordings before issuing them in America. Without this reverb, the UK records had a drier sound, arguably a cleaner sound. And because of this, an instrumental passage or vocal inflection could occasionally be heard more distinctly on a British copy since it was not impacted by the reverb. It's arguably clearer, but not necessarily superior. As I say, I have no problem with the American versions of early Beatle releases, including the distinct stereo separation and a touch of reverb. George Martin had complained about the stereo release of Meet the Beatles. Did he also care about the added reverb? I don't know. I have never seen a quote from him on this topic. What did the Beatles think about reverb? Did they think about reverb? I don't know. But the distinction between stereo and mono is a battleground topic. I once wrote a piece where I sort of went after the later-day mono enthusiasts. I said that Sgt. Pepper should be listened to in stereo, pointing to the song being for the benefit of Mr. Kite as a prime example of why stereo listening was preferable for this album. I was immediately chastised. One reader was ready with a John Lennon quote that read, You haven't heard Pepper until you've heard it in mono. I have seen this line quoted with some regularity in recent years, but have never seen the source cited. But for the moment, let's say the quote is accurate. Lennon likes his pepper in mono. Well, okay, John, but I disagree. There are reasons to play the mono version of pepper. For example, you can hear what Paul is shouting more distinctly at the end of the reprisal of the title track, and there is an extra drum beat added to the introduction of this same piece. Also, the audience laughter at the conclusion of George Harrison's song Within You and Without You is more prominent on the mono mix. But Sgt. Pepper in mono as a superior listening experience? Not for me. Sit me down right between those two big speakers and let her rip. In stereo. Some say that Lennon was being purposefully coy by praising the mono-pressing of Sgt. Pepper. He knew that most Americans had purchased the stereo copy. But I won't go that far. And mono-pressings of Pepper were available in American record stores when it was released in 1967. A friend of mine had a copy. This would not be true of the White Album, issued just 18 months later. The White Album was released in stereo and in mono in Europe, but the American market carried only the stereo versions, and nobody complained.
or even thought about it. I had no idea an official mono release of the White Album even existed until just a few years ago. I don't know anyone who did. It was not on our collective radar. A few years after being slapped down by that John Lennon mono quote, I had the opportunity to ask producer and Beatle insider Peter Asher about the Beatles' feelings concerning stereo and mono sound. He assured me that the group was only interested in mono and they found stereo to be a fad. Maybe so, but this fad had already been accepted as the industry standard even while the Beatles were still together. Note that Abbey Road and Let It Be were not even mixed or issued in mono. Mono was gone. But I am guessing that no matter the configuration, mono or stereo, added reverb or not, the Beatles were just happy that fans were buying their music. In some ways, the harsh stereo mix of Meet the Beatles offered a foretaste of what has become fashionable in recent years, to isolate an instrument or vocal from the rest of the recording. There are many such releases of isolated performances, often found on expansive box sets. The Beach Boys' Pet Sounds Box is one such example, where individual tracks can be heard isolated from the rest of the music on the record. The Beach Boys were ahead of the game with unusual mixes, but perhaps not intentionally. In the summer of 1968, the group's career had stalled. Capitol Records released an album called Stacko Tracks. It consisted of the instrumental backing tracks to the Beach Boys' best-known songs. The vocals had been removed. A songbook of lyrics was included with the album, evidently to encourage an early version of karaoke. Beach Boys scholar Brian Karthauser finds it strange that a band known for their vocal harmonies would put out a record of instrumentals. The All Music Guide calls it one of the oddest albums released by a major rock group in the 1960s. I won't disagree. If Stack of Tracks was groundbreaking in a curious way, the Beach Boys could point to their earlier Pet Sounds album as innovative. As with George Martin's early Beatles sessions, the Beach Boys' Brian Wilson recorded the music for Pet Sounds on various tracks to be used in a final mono mix. And this is what happened. The Pet Sounds album was released in 1966 and was noteworthy for many reasons, one being that there was no stereo version of this album available. Even in 1966, a mono-only album release was very unusual. But this was consistent with the recording history of the Beach Boys, who would not issue a true stereo mix of a new album until 1968 on their record called Friends. Whatever his reasons, Pet Sounds continued Brian Wilson's mono mindset. And this mix does have its advantages. With a mono mix, it doesn't matter where the speakers or the people are located in a room. The sound is not split between speakers. This means that listeners don't have to concern themselves with stereo imaging. Not that many do anyway. And even if a listener wanted to alter the audio balance between the stereo tracks, a mono mix prevents this. Which brings us back to a producer's control over how an audience hears the record. Some have also wondered if Brian Wilson's lack of enthusiasm for stereo sound was partially due to his near deafness in his right ear. I remember seeing a sticker on a copy of Pet Sounds many years after its release, during Wilson's missing years. The sticker seemed defiant in its proclamation, reading, This record is in mono sound, the way Brian mixed it. Okay, one channel audio remained preferable to Brian Wilson. George Martin was a long-time fan of Wilson's studio abilities and said as much. Maybe the Pet Sounds mix was part of that admiration. But in 1966, the mono-only availability of Pet Sounds was an anomaly, even though most of the public was not overly concerned about the differences in mono and stereo mixes. 
but the industry was starting to embrace stereo for their new releases, going so far as to purge their warehouses of mono holdings. I recall an incident from the early days of my album-buying obsession. In junior high, my music funds would come through a newspaper route and my work at a grocery store. This was around 1967. A friend told me that he had seen the Beatles' Six album in a bin at a pharmacy. And at this time, many stores had small racks of record albums, sort of an impulse purchase thing. But seeing a Beatles album in such a store was surprising. These bins usually held records by Andy Williams and the Ray Conniff Singers. What was more amazing was when my friend told me that the record had a $1.99 sticker on it. Unbelievable. Beatle albums were never on sale. This was half the price of a normal album, which held steady at $4 for a long time during my early days of record acquisition. I did not yet have Beatles 6, but was aware of it. Even at the time, I thought the record looked to be a mishmash of odd tracks. As such, it wasn't at the top of my album want list, but I also knew it was by the Beatles, and I needed it. So that night, I asked my mother if she would drive me to that store. Fortunately, she was in need of something and agreed. And there it was, Beatles 6, with a big cutout hole in the corner and the sticker for $1.99. I took it home, played it, and liked it. Not as much as some of their other albums, but I liked it. I still didn't understand the low price or the cutout hole. It was not until a few weeks later that I realized this was a mono copy of the record. This explained both the hole and the price, although I was still surprised by both. At first, I was irritated that the record was a monocopy, but I soon decided it didn't really matter. It sounded just fine. Later, I saw my purchase of the Beatles 6 album as the symbolic beginning of the end for American record companies' interest in manufacturing monocopies of their new releases. The subject of mono and stereo mixes is a huge one, and today we have just touched the edge of its audio universe. But for now, let's bring this edition to a close. I will have more to say, perhaps soon, about mono, stereo, and quadraphonic recordings. Something to look forward to. Until then, this has been The Vinyl Approach. I'm Tom Wilmeth, and if you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Soundbites, A Lifetime of Listening. Soundbites is available on Amazon. This has been The Vinyl Approach, and I'll see you next time.